invite you now to stand as we look in God's Word at Isaiah chapter 11. I'm going to read Isaiah 11, 10 through 16 to you. And really, Isaiah 11 and 12 are so hopeful. It's this wonderful, hopeful section of Isaiah. I hope you catch a sense of that with all the negativity in our world I hope you catch a sense of the wonderful hope we can have in the future as Christians. So Isaiah chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 10 through the end of the chapter, verse 16. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time, to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, And those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west. And together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, would you guide us and lead us to have the very mind of Christ today? Would you transform our thoughts that we might think your thoughts after you? And lead us to apprehend better the truth that we might live in according to that truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. There was a poll that was conducted uh, earlier this year. I don't know if you saw this. And the, the question was, and, and you know, I've got to preface this, all statistics are forms of flying, right? And, and, but nonetheless, about 70% of people in this poll said our country was heading in the wrong direction. 70%. That's, that's a fair piece, isn't it? 70% of people saying that our country is headed in the wrong direction. I don't need to tell you that. People are so negative, aren't they? People be so negative these days, aren't they? And I've mentioned before the national pastime is, of course, not baseball. It's getting together with other people and rehearsing what is wrong with our country, with our world, with our culture You've heard all that from me before. Let's see what we can do to have a better view of the future. And what I mean by that is not just better, not just better, but a biblical view of the future. I want to tell you, you know, we have the the question here. Okay, is the glass half full or half empty? 
what kind of perspective and personality do you have? Is, is it half full or, or half empty? Well, it's actually empty. So, so I kind of tricked you there. This is not half full, half empty. This is not optimism. It's not positive thinking. It is none of that. It's not stoicism, which says, essentially, I'll just toughen up in these difficult circumstances. A biblical view of the future is none of those things, and it also isn't this idea that it's all going to burn, we're headed to H-E double hockey stick in a handbasket, and that's where we're going. That is not a biblical view of the future. And here's my challenge to you. Are you going to think about the future like God does? Are you going to have God's view of the future? He is not negative about the future. Not one bit. If you think he is, you have not had your mind renewed by the truth of God's word. God is not negative about the future. He controls the future. The future belongs to him. We read in Revelation chapter eleven fifteen. you cannot get by this verse. You cannot get by this verse and Christians have ignored it, Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is a positive future that we are headed to, by God's grace, I'm not telling you to ignore what is bad or evil in the world or the fact that we live in a fallen world, but can you envision a God-glorifying future here on earth, or are you too cynical and depressed and despairing? If the gospel transforms people's hearts, it transforms our future too. So I'm asking you, to believe biblically about the future. How do we do that? Where is the hope in this passage? And I'll tell you, first thing is the hope is in God's promise. God's promise. To be hopeful about the future is not whistling in the dark. To be hopeful about the future is grounded in the truth of God's promise. His promise. Well, in verse 10, you see this promise. In that day, the root of Jesse. So the root of Jesse, of course, this is a reference to the Savior. It's not the first time we've encountered this theme. The root of Jesse, the fact that Jesus would be a descendant from David and is foretold in Isaiah, he who would come to rescue his people. This is mentioned in Isaiah 11.1, 1, Isaiah 4.2, Isaiah 6.13. This is a theme, and the idea is out of this judgment, God would cut down the tree of Israel, so to speak, but out of that death, and think to, for a second how we have life out of death at the cross, out of that judgment, out of that death would spring new God's people, a remnant a display of his grace. So in that day, the root of Jesse is a statement that God keeps all his promises. He keeps his promises, his covenant promises that he makes. And we read in verse 10, 
who shall stand as a signal for the people. So imagine sort of a flagpole on a hill, a very prominent. Jesus would be lifted up on the cross, and this would be a signal for the peoples. So the peoples here, these are Gentiles, these are outsiders. Of him shall the nations inquire, we read in verse 10. This is, this is positive. This is going in a good direction. They see the signal. They inquire, and inquire here means closer to seek. So they seek, and you remember in, you might remember in Isaiah 8.13, the people are seeking, but they're inquiring of necromancers and mediums. That's in, oh, excuse me, that's in Isaiah 8.19, 8.19, and then you get this condemnatory statement about inquiry. Uh, that is in chapter 9. And we read in verse 13, they didn't inquire of the Lord of hosts. And what do you have now? You have the correction of that. You have the peoples, the Gentiles, seeking, inquiring of the Lord. And then listen to this at the end of verse 10. And his resting place shall be glorious. Again, a positive future. His resting place could have a dual meaning here. A lot of prophetic literature, have you have dual meanings. His resting place could be the tomb, how the tomb is a symbol of the glory of God in the empty tomb. Everything that Jesus did is affirmed and authenticated by that empty tomb. So we could think the empty garden tomb, if you've ever been to Israel, the garden tomb or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, of course, we understand the final resting place is somewhat contested, historically not totally known, but it also can mean not just the empty tomb as a, as a signal that everything that Jesus said was right and true, and in his death we have life, but also his final resting place at the right hand of God where he ever lives to intercede for us. Do you have any reason to be negative about the future with a risen Savior? It's still Easter. A risen Savior who has defeated sin and death, our greatest enemies, and then he intercedes for us so that the promises of God are always applied in our life. Several years ago, I bought a vehicle, bought a vehicle at a dealership, and the statute of limitations is past this, so, you know, don't advise me on this. It, I, I don't own the vehicle anymore, okay? But I'm going to tell you this story anyway. So, we work the deal, I work the deal with the sales, salesman, and I wanted a certain accessory on this vehicle that I was buying, so I said, okay, I'll tell you what. You know, it's not a new vehicle, so when you get a trade-in that has that accessory, give me a call, I'll bring the vehicle in, and you pull it off of that trade-in, and you put it on, on my vehicle. Doesn't that sound reasonable? It sounds reasonable, doesn't it? So at the end of the deal, they give you a piece of paper, and it's called a WEO, and he wrote on the WIO that they would give me this accessory as we outlined. And I thought, oh, everything is well and good. 
and, you know, took my paperwork home and waited a couple weeks and called the salesman. Hey, you have a trade-in yet? That has that a very common accessory. Should have had a trade-in by then. No, no, you know. And, you know, kind of went on. I have great follow-up skills. It eventually went to the daily call, to make a long story short. But I went and I reviewed the paperwork. And I looked at it. And this document that they give you at the end of the sale called the WIO, it's a carbon copy document. So just in case you don't know what that is, if you press onto the... It, it makes a carbon copy, an exact copy. He, the salesman... He had separated the two, and then he wrote the accessory part on my copy, not on the dealership's copy. Don't feel sorry for me. Don't bless my heart. <laughs> he gave me a great learning experience, that's for sure. But I, wanted to, I tell you that story to say, Christianity is not like this. You are not going to somehow, sometime in your life, have this terrible experience where God has not been faithful, where God will not, at the end of the ages, be demonstrated as anything but a God who has kept His word and promises to you. I think part of the drama in life, part of the excitement, is the anticipation of seeing that happen, even in Seemingly impossible situations, I promise you, you will see God proved faithful to His promises. He doesn't give you the jacked up paperwork. If you are disappointed with God, that has more to do with you than it does with Him. He keeps His promises, and that's one of the reasons why we're so positive about the future as Christians. But we have another reason. Not only does God keep His promises, we have another reason to have a biblical view of the future that is positive, optimistic, hopeful, joyful, and happy. And that's God's steadfast love. And you see that steadfast love come across in verse 11. In that day, now I want to pause there. So when Isaiah says, in that day, he uses that phrase at least 40 times in Isaiah, and it is code for a future day, in that day. And oftentimes, this is a little complex, so shake off the cobwebs from this morning. In that day actually has sometimes, in Isaiah, three different futures envisioned. And this is what makes prophetic literature sometimes hard to understand. When he says, in that day, there are actually three futures he has in mind. He has what we could call the present future. In other words, whatever is about to be said in that day applies to the nation of Israel, the divided kingdom, could be Judah, could be Israel, in that, within that generation, within, say, 50 years, that applies. That's the near future prediction the present future, we could call it. But then there is the more distant future as well that sometimes Isaiah has in mind, and this has to do with the life ministry of Jesus. And so that's a fast forward to 
the time of Jesus' earthly ministry and the cross. And then the third future is at the end of the ages, when Christ returns. So you follow me? Three futures in, in mind. And so what we read in verse 11, in that day the Lord will extend His hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of His people. Now this is, we know enough about Isaiah to have traveled through those early chapters to know they are sinners well-deserving of God's judgment. We know that. And so what we read here is God is going to extend His hand and recover the people who have been scattered And then we get a geographic list of where they are scattered, and it ends with the coastlands of the sea. And anytime you see islands or coastlands in the Old Testament, it's a communication of the most furthest area. And so what we read here is God is going to mercifully extend His hand and regather His people who have been scattered. And this means... Now we have the three futures coming into play. This means those who go into exile are going to be regathered. That's who you heard Lamentations read earlier in our worship service. This is coming back from the exile in Babylon. So he's going to regather his people. Then he will regather his people through Christ. He will regather his people at the end of the ages And these are all reasons why we have reasons to hope in this future. You cannot be so scattered in any age or generation that God cannot, through the gospel and the work of Christ, regather His people. We are evidence 2,000 years post-earthly ministry of Christ. We are the evidence. He has gathered His people. People. He is still in the business, so to speak, of gathering his people. And we can be confident in his steadfast love that he will not reject his people, but extend mercy to them. God's steadfast love can outlast our sin and Israel's sin here. God's steadfast love is a powerful dynamic that works to gather his people and to minister to them. And of course, do they deserve to be recovered? No. But the remnant, those who are left and are regathered, are evidence of God's mercy then and in the future. In the future. And so that's one reason we can have hope. When you think about kids, when you think about future generation, and a lot of times... Christians are very negative with regard to what these kids are facing and what's going on. And sometimes, too, we get negative about the future with regard to the way we perceive those generations coming up. And I'll tell you a story. So D.A. Carson, you know who D.A. Carson is? Premier evangelical scholar, a New Testament professor, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I mean, very well-known, author of 60 books. We had him come speak at Trinity. It was a wonderful, wonderful coup for us as a church. And, you know, because I'm kind of nerdy theologically and stuff like that, of course, I'm going to pick him up at the airport. (laughs) So I pick him up at the airport, and there we are, driving down I-10. Tracy's there. 
Got DA card. Almost sideswiped somebody, but, you know, we don't have to talk about that. And I asked D.A. Carson, because he's been a New Testament professor, well, what do you think? What do you think of this new generation? Because he's seen several generations of students. So I asked him, what do you think about millennials and Gen Z? You know, what are, what are, your, what are your thoughts? Okay, he's over 70 at the time. I love this new generation. And his answer kind of took me aback. I didn't expect that. You think about theological standards and other things and seminary education and all that, and he says he loves that new generation, and he gave reasons. Their their vulnerability, their honesty, their kindness, their ability to express compassion, their understanding and grasp of a global perspective. And he gave lots of reasons like that. And he loves that new generation. And, and so does God. God loves the new generation that is coming up. He is not down on them because he is Lord of the nations and he is gathering his people. And you know who else loves millennials is... Uh, General, he's retired now, Admiral William McGraven. If you're a UT person, you know. If he's, a, he's a UT alumnus, and then he was president of uh, UT for a while. He's retired now. He's the one who planned the raid to get Osama bin Laden, big-time uh, Navy SEAL. And here's what he said. He was interviewed in 2019. He was interviewed in 2019. And he said this, quote, They talk about millennials being soft and pampered and entitled. Well, I'm quick to say, then you've never seen them in a firefight in Afghanistan. This is a fabulous generation. And anybody that worries about the future of the U.S., I don't think you need to worry. That's what he said. And you know, the reality is, if we're ever in trouble, it's not the middle-aged people who are coming to get us. I hope not. I can kind of envision that. Oh, my, my knee's bothering me. No, you're going to have a new generation coming to rescue you. And so my encouragement to you is love this new generation because God's grace is still active with them. And He is at work. And just like the example of D.A. Carson, he knew, knows God is at work in that new generation. And so we need to repent and we need to understand that the gospel can impact that new generation just like it did us. Just like it did us. And so we can have confidence in a future where God is impacting young people and sending them out through the power of the gospel to have transformed lives that give God glory. So God's steadfast love still at work in every generation, and we can have confidence in that. So I'm talking about having a biblical view of the future, biblical view of the future. 
And we have that biblical view because of God's promises, God's steadfast love, and then finally God's victory here. Verses 12 through 16 are really the summary that comes out of verses 10 and 11. So you get the repetition of in that day, in that day, and then now we're going to get more detail. It's almost as if you double-click on the folder that has verses 10 and 11 in it, and you get verses 12 through 16 in this expose of the victory of God. So in verse 12, you get a repetition of verse 11. Then in verse 13, you find out that Judah and Ephraim that had this rivalry, that's all going to be settled. There will be peace. And then verse 14, Israel is portrayed as a bird of prey taking out their enemies, the Philistines. If you know anything about Old Testament history, you know the Philistines were really at odds with Israel. And they shall plunder the people of the east. So that is code for Assyria, as Assyria is rising in power. And they shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab. This is in verse 14. And the Ammonites shall obey them. So it's a a vision of victory over each of these nations that is an enemy of God's people. And then look at this in verse 15. The Lord will utterly, utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt, will wave his hand over the river, so probably the river Euphrates, a very large river. And then God is going to take that river, break it into seven parts. He'll break up the kingdom. And as you know, if a, if a river is in a single channel, it's hard to cross, but God's going to work to break it apart such that the people will be led across in sandals. That's at the end of verse 15. Well, what does that mean? It, it means you don't even have to take off your shoes. God is going to dominate and conquer such that his people will safely travel across. And we find out in verse 16, there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnants, for the remnant that remains of the people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. And this is a very important, let's not skip over this. In verse 16, you have a reference to the Exodus, don't you? And there are really two great, you can understand all of Scripture through the lens of two great deliverances. Two exoduses, as it were. The first exodus, of course, out of Egypt, as Israel was delivered from slavery, and they came up from the land of Egypt, and God blessed them. And then the other deliverance is not out of a physical slavery, but out of a spiritual one. In the New Testament, God leads us out of the land of captivity, out of the captivity of sin, and is victorious. So these two great deliverances remind us that God is in the business of delivering His people. And so when we think about having a biblical view of the future, we must have our minds transformed around these truths. You notice here in Isaiah 11, there's no negativity about this new generation. There's no negativity about the future. It is all positive, uplifting, hopeful, optimistic, because Isaiah sees that God will keep his promises, 
that God's steadfast love is still active in every generation, and that God will have the ultimate victory. This is a victory that was experienced in part when the remnant returned, but is finally experienced at the end of the ages. And we together, through the transforming power of the gospel, those who are banished and scattered are gathered again, even now in this church, in this generation, as part of the victory of what God has done. And so here's the thing, this week, today, this week, don't give in to that negativity. Have God's mind for a view of the future. Anything less, anything less, and you are denying the power of the gospel. If you deny the victory of God, if you give way to the very common liturgical influence in our culture of all this negativity about the future and we're heading in the wrong direction. Hey, maybe we're heading in the wrong direction, but God is still God. If you are negative about the future, you are actually disbelieving the power of the gospel and the power of God to transform hearts. And so, what do we do? We need to repent. We need to move forward in hope and power that the gospel gives us as we see God glorified in this generation. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray you would help us to not have minds that are captive by loud voices in our society which do not believe the power of the resurrection. We pray instead that we would be a people formed and shaped according to your word, according to your promises, and according to your steadfast love and the victory that you will bring. Help us to think through the way we maintain ourselves, and the way we act and the things that we say, that we might have the kind of hope that only Christ, through the gospel, gives us. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.